submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 94 and 947, National Labor Relations Board versus Town and Country Electric. Mr. Wallace, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, for almost 30 years, the National Labor Relations Board consistently and repeatedly has held that a person who applies for or holds a job with an employer that he intends to try to organize and who will be compensated by a union for his organizational activity is an employee within the meaning of Section 2.3 of the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, that section is set forth on page 2 of our brief and was last interpreted and applied by this Court in its 1984 decision in Sure 10, Incorporated, against the NLRB, and we are content to use the words of this Court in Sure 10 in describing this provision, and I'm quoting now from uh, page uh, 891 of volume 467 U.S., the breadth of Section 2.3's definition is striking. The Act squarely applies to, quote, any employee, unquote. The only limitations are specific exemptions for agricultural laborers, domestic workers, individuals employed by their spouses or parents, individuals employed as independent contractors or supervisor or supervisors, and individuals employed by a person who is not an employer under the National Labor Relations Act. The Court then concluded that undocumented aliens are not among the few groups of workers expressly exempted by Congress, and they therefore plainly come within the broad statutory definition. Is it your position, Mr. Wallace, that if a person does not come within that, any of those exemptions and is, quote, hired, close quote, he, he is therefore an employee? Well, that uh, is uh, the conclusion that the Court reached, and it I, is I, our — I, I ask what, what your position yeah, Our position is that uh, he is therefore an employee unless uh, uh, there are reasons in interpreting the National Labor Relations Act why an implied exemption should be found, a question for the Board to address initially. And uh, the only example in which this Court found an implied exemption was the case of NLRB against Bell Aerospace, uh, which involved managerial employees. And the Court, uh, in uh, reliance upon the legislative history of the Taft-Hartley Act and its uh, overruling of this Court's uh, decision in the Packard case by uh, adding to this list of exemption supervisors, 
uh, had uh, that Congress had relied on the notion that managerial employees would be excluded sort of a fortiori from supervisors and that the board had always, while not holding them not to be employees, had always placed them in separate bargaining units from other employees. Um, what, what, what about an employee who uh, fills out a job application is hired, uh, and yet his only purpose is to get into the plant so that he can blow it up. He's, he's a terrorist. Is, is that person an employee for purposes of the National Labor Relations Act? If, if, if he applied for a job that he uh, was uh, seeking uh, where he would be working for wages under the supervision of the employer, yeah, yes, he would it. be within the statutory definition of employee. What the board has... So he, that person is an employee. That doesn't mean that he has to be hired. Well, supposing the company, not knowing this, goes ahead and hires him. Then he's subject to all of the company's work rules and duties of loyalty. Of course, if the company hires him, he's even more so an employee. I mean, the court uh, resolved in the 1941 decision in Phelps Dodge that applicants are within the, the statutory coverage because Section uh, uh, 8A3 protects that a, applicants from discrimination in hiring. Isn't, isn't that Exhibit A, what I'm talking about, of, of, a, of an inconsistent loyalties? I mean, the, the, the person is simply going, uh, going on the payroll in order to get into the factory. He'll perform the work for a day, but then he intends to blow the place up that night. The, the, uh, uh, this is, um, of course, it would be a breach of duty whether whether it was it would be because he wanted to do it of his own volition or whether because of loyalty to some other group it would be a breach of duty. What what the board the board has pointed the way to the proper analysis of these issues in the companion case of this very case. Uh, there were two cases decided together, this case and Sunland Construction Company, which is cited in all of the briefs. And there the board held, after writing an opinion identical to the opinion in this one until the last few paragraphs, uh, reaching the conclusion that uh, applicants of this kind are employees within the meaning of the Act, the Board held that nonetheless it would not be a violation, an unjustified discrimination under 8A1 or 8A3 for an employer to refuse to hire a paid union organizer in the discrete context of an ongoing strike situation in which uh, the uh, paid union organizer would have uh, a, a duty to support the work stoppage in an attempt to coerce the employer, a legitimate attempt, 
under the law to coerce the employer to accede to the union's demands, and the employer would have an equally legitimate right uh, uh, to uh, want to hire replacement workers who might be uh, non-union members, might be outside the bargaining unit, might be uh, strike well, breakers of other kinds to try to carry well, on their operations. Why wouldn't the same reasoning that you just explained to us for the strike exception apply to the person who is under an agreement with the union to walk out when the union blows the whistle? Why isn't there that same inconsistency? Because uh, uh, while that is a, a, uh, a, a rule of the voluntary organization, uh, Section 7 of the Act uh, protects uh, the right of workers to have voluntary organizations, including uh, their right to make reasonable rules of conduct for their members. Uh, but you're talking about a future contingency, and when the time comes under this Court's decision in Pattern Makers and the rationale of this decision, uh, each individual can decide for himself whether he will, in fact, uh, adhere but to this, the, u that's, that's the union different. rule. Mr. Wallace, different. The worker can decide for himself. The worker who is under an agreement that the worker will walk when told to by a third party, let's say the third party were not the union but a competitor. The applicant has an agreement with the competitor that he will if he gets this job, he'll stay on it till the competitor says, walk out. Would such a person qualify as an employee when going in he has that agreement with the competitor? He would definitely qualify as an employee, although the rationale of Sunland might apply. This is not an uncommon hypothetical. There, there can be employees who have been suspended from their job, uh, who have an agreement with the employer that they will return when recalled and retain their seniority and retain their advanced pay scale status so they have an economic incentive to return to this competing employer. In the meantime, they've been laid off. They need a job. They go to another uh, competitor and take the job. They're, of course they're an employee. They're covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act. The employer must withhold taxes but for them. But one can be an employee for one purpose and not the other, isn't that? It's possible, but they are an employee. For example, let's take these employees and there's an election. They go in and they try to organize. There are a number of workers who are in favor of the union. There's an election. Can the paid organizer does the paid organizer count as an employee for that purpose? He's an employee, but that doesn't mean that he's entitled to vote. There, that is a question about which employees have a community of interests. What is the, uh, what is the provision the in the statute that entitles someone to vote in a union election? Well, I don't recall. It's not uh, uh, directly before us, but it, it, it's... If it uses the word employee someone might not be an employee for that purpose, although would be an employee for another purpose. 
Well, the board has always held that these people are employees. They're just they don't have a community of interest with other employees in the bargaining unit. That has always been the inquiry about whether someone can vote in a particular election, whether he is a member of the bargaining unit because of the community of interest standards that the board looks to. What you're saying about someone who has an inconsistent obligation, whether that coincides with the approach that Judge Williams took in the Wilmar case, or is it different? Well, I think the Board's approach and the approach that Judge Williams took on behalf of the D.C. Circuit in in, in the Wilmar case are uh, substantially identical. Uh, There may be some differences in articulation, but in in Wilmar, uh, the D.C. Circuit said that, yes, these are employees, and we leave for another day whether um, uh, the employer would be justified in uh, treating them differently under 8A1 or 8A3, in other words, in not hiring them. Uh, it was shortly thereafter that the board decided town and country and Sunland, and it reached opposite conclusions on the question left for another day, depending on whether there was an ongoing strike or not, because the board did not regard it as a, an irreconcilable conflict of interest under the National <laughs> Labor Relations Act for a, an employee to have uh, a loyalty to his union and to uh, uh, the voluntary right of self-organization and uh, to the employer. Did the That's board, the, uh, Mr. Wallace, did the board rule expressly on the provision of the salting resolution that the employee would walk when told to by the union? Uh, I wasn't aware that the board had ruled specifically on that, as distinguished from being, uh, being paid by the union. The focus before the board was on the compensation question. It was uh, the Court of Appeals that relied more strongly and uh, 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 responded, and, and uh, their amici are relying more strongly on the salting resolution itself. Uh, so the board did not address a contention specifically based on the salting resolution, but it did uh, um, uh, discuss um, the question of control, which is what that argument is based on, and pointed out that any uh, paid union organizer, as the board calls anyone getting any form of compensation from the union with a duty to organize, uh, would still be subject to the employer's direction and control, to his work rules, to the obligations to uh, perform his duties in an acceptable manner for the employer. And uh, indeed, what the board found is that uh, someone in this situation uh, has an added incentive not to perform in a substandard manner or to do any act that would warrant discharge because that would uh, uh, defeat his opportunity 
to be on the premises and to engage in his organizing campaign during off work hours. So far from finding any uh, conflicting duties, because after all, he's subject to the same uh, rules of no solicitation during work time or in work areas. It's done uh, at, at lunch break or after uh, work is over. You don't really have uh, acts simultaneously being performed Mr. in Wallace. the classic sense for two different masters under the restatement. Mr. Wallace. Can an employer legitimately adopt a hiring policy to the effect that we will not hire anyone who moonlights for another employer or who has another job, including a job for the union? It's just our policy not to hire people who do have or may have a second job. So long as it is a neutral uh, policy that is not uh, directed uh, at anti-union animus, it could be in a particular factual setting a pretext for the denial yeah, of it, rights it, under Presumably the there could be such an employer policy, and it could include even employment by the union, as in this context. Absolutely. Any neutral across-the-board policy requiring a commitment to work for a certain duration of time, asking whether there are obligations to any third party that might interfere with future duties in any way, certainly asking whether there is an obligation to anyone. This, this would be answered no, that, that last question. You, you say that uh, that, that question uh, put to a union organizer w would would be answered no. Whether there's any conflicting obligation to someone else that would interfere with duties in any way. You say well, the union I, organizer I, I, can stand up and say no. Well, it, it, that depends on, on what the, the neutral policy of the employer is. If the employer says... Uh, uh, that they want everyone uh, to swear that they have no obligation no, no, to... No, about the question that you put. You said that the employer may ask applicants whether he has any commitment to a third party that would interfere with duties in any way. And as I understand your, your presentation to us, you think that the, your, the union organizer can answer that question honestly? No. I, that, that is true in this context of this case where you have employment at will, where either the employer or the employee has a right to leave at any time. Uh, that's, that's the only possible. Uh, uh, now, what if it were a term contract? I mean, what, why, but that, would, 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 would people who, who are, sure, you, 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 suppose it's a term contract for three years, and he has the same arrangement with the, with the union that he'll quit when the union tells him to. That the employer could definitely ask whether there are any conflicting obligations that would result in premature departure and failure to observe the term. But suppose uh, he doesn't ask. Uh, it, would that, the existence of that conflict not be a sufficient reason for dismissal? That's not this case. That's not this case, and I can't really pre-commit the board to it. This is not an employer who asked for any term uh, uh, on okay. behalf you acknowledge that would be different, though, it, it would because be. there his obligation to the union might indeed require him to break a, a duty, a commitment to the employer. Mr. Wallace, it would be different in terms of whether the employer has a right to discharge him, 
But would it be different on, with respect to the question whether he was nevertheless an employee during the period of his service? Precisely what I was about to say. He would still be an employee as an applicant for the job, but it, it would raise the Sunland question. The Sunland contention that this was justified discrimination was never raised before the Board in this case. And it would have been hard to raise it in this case because at the time the adverse action was taken, the employer here did not know of the salting resolution, did not know of the union compensation. I'm, I'm so, not sure, I, Mr. Wallace, that I fully understand your, your example or your statement or your concession that an employer with a neutral purpose, let's say, can ask, do you have any conflicting obligations to any other employer or organization? And suppose the answer to that is yes, I'm a member of the union and I'll strike if they tell me to do that. I, I, I suppose he's in, mandatorily entitled to employment. Well, that is not a, a, a conflicting obligation. Uh, um, the, uh, uh, well, I suppose the employer the it that way. The, it, it, it isn't because of the, uh, because of the labor laws. The National that Labor Relations is, that Act. Is, that is correct. And so I, I, I think you have to amend your statement to say that if the, if the reason for an affirmative answer to the question, do you have a conflicting obligation, is uh, a primary loyalty to the union, that uh, that, that uh, is a super, supervening reason that entitles the employee to be hired, well, I, I should think. That is a question for the board, um, and it reached the opposite conclusion in Sunland Construction, which is the only case in which it has reached the opposite conclusion in the discrete context of an ongoing strike. Oh, that was but an ongoing strike. Yes, yes. So it, 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 but but sure, sure, you don't mean that uh, uh, union membership, uh, which imposes certain duties, uh, which can be enforced, I take it, by a cause of action for damages, etc., uh, is, is grounds for non-employment. Well, I would not anticipate that the Board would uh, readily expand Sunland construction. Well, I would not anticipate the Board could do that consistently with the National Labor Relations Act. Well, of course, that question would be subject to judicial review if, if the Board attempted to do it. What I'm trying to point out is that that is the proper analytical approach to questions of whether refusal to hire a particular person would be justified. But instead, uh, this case has been litigated on a theory that these people are sort of outlaws ab initio. They're not even employees within the meaning of the act, even though the, the uh, employer did not know of the salting resolution or the compensation at the time it took the adverse action. This is a way to get around the McKinnon against Nashville banner analysis uh, for after acquired knowledge, you just say, well, they're outlaws ab initio now that we know this knowledge. Uh, and of course, the knowledge itself has to be something disqualifying in order for the after acquired knowledge to uh, uh, affect the remedy under McKinnon against Nashville Banner, which the board said it is not the case here anyway. In, in, in deciding uh, the definition of employee, should we defer to the board? That is, I know Hearst uh, did defer. And then uh, in United Insurance, 
uh, it said Congress amended the statute, but it amended the statute only in respect to independent contractor. And the particular aspect of the employee definition here doesn't involve that. And, and uh, United Insurance talks about that. And so I, I was wondering, do, do you think maybe, maybe we should, maybe that deference notion is still alive, and I don't know why it wouldn't be in, in, in respect to uh, uh, other aspects of the definition. We, we argue that deference is appropriate here, as the Court uh, stated quite explicitly in Shortan. We are dealing here with a situation in which both the Board and the Court of Appeals look toward various provisions of the restatement of agency to uh, uh, say what common law principles would shed light here. The difference between them was not so much about what the common law principles are. It was a difference about how those principles should be applied to a question of labor management relations in the context of the National Labor Relations Act. Yeah, but that's exactly With, what's bothering me. I don't, I don't want to say, if, if it's not right, that, that, uh, uh, that the restatement automatically governs in these non-independent contractor-related areas. If the Board were to choose to go beyond it, I, I, I mean, a holding of this Court that they couldn't would, might be a problem, and, and, and that's why I asked the question. Well, the, the, the common law of agency really does not answer the question of how do you apply these principles in the context of a labor management question under the National Labor Relations Act with its Section 7 rights and its uh, rights under Section 8. That is a question that implicates the Board's expertise. Uh, th there wasn't a dispute about what are those principles. They were both getting them out of the restatement of agency. Uh, Mr. Wallace, I thought your first argument, though, was that this statute has a plain meaning that everything that isn't in excluded is included. If, it, if that's the case, then you don't have any question of deference, right? Well, I did point out to one implied exception that the Court found in the Bell Aerospace case, and what I was about to say at that point in my argument was that the Court's opinion in Shortan, after saying that the undocumented aliens fall within the plain meaning, then went on to analyze whether the Board's uh, interpretation that they should therefore be covered was consistent with the purposes of the Act and entitled to deference and agreed uh, after some discussion that it was consistent with the purposes of the Act. Is it Chevron deference or some other kind of deference? Well, we, we like to think of it as, as uh, equivalent to Chevron <laughs> deference. Uh, um, it, uh, it but is what is equivalent? You seem to be uh, not wanting to put the Chevron label. I'm very happy with what the Court said in Shortan. The task of defining the term employee, and I'm looking at page 891 of that opinion, is one that, quote, has been assigned primarily to the agency created by Congress to administer the, the act. And the court went on to say, and I'm quoting from the court's opinion, the board's construction of that term is entitled to considerable deference, and we will uphold any interpretation that is reasonably defensible. Did Shertan come down before or after Chevron? I, that was before Chevron. Well, do you think okay. Chevron has changed that principle at all? Well, only in its emphasis on, uh, on the step one analysis that a statute may definitively answer the question on its face, which 
if that applies here, would apply in our favor, if I may reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. Wallace. Uh, Mr. Pease, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case involves a question of whether the Board, instead of protecting the freedom of employees to choose to be unionized or not to be unionized, departed from its role as impartial referee uh, in the contest or conflict between employers and unions for the votes of employees, and interpreted Section 2.3 of the Act to give protected status to, of, of employee to union agents whose job was to be the arms, the eyes, the ears, and the voice of the union on the employer's crew, and who were prohibited by contract from why, why is that inconsistent with the, with the duty to the employer? I mean, I thought that the whole theory of the National Labor Relations Act is that you can be a good employee and a loyal union member at the same time. That's correct. Um, I, I can understand if you have a duty to two employers with respect to the same act, uh, you, you have a problem. But, but his duty to the employer related to, to one act, his duty to the union related to other acts, namely his off-duty time uh, in which he would be, uh, be, hire, be recruiting people to the union. What, what's bad about that? Your Honor, the, the first, in the first place, the conduct was not limited to off-duty. Secondly, well, wait, it, it doesn't have to be under, under the Labor Relations Act? I mean, you can fire him for that, can't you? Can, no. can he in the first his... place, that, that, that distinction is only material if that person is an employee within the meaning of the Act. If a supervisor uh, does it at any time, that person can be fired. If someone is not, does not have the status of employee, right. they are not entitled to the protection of the Act at any time. I understand. I understand. Okay, okay well, go on. The, the, uh, are you saying, then, if the identical arrangement were made between someone who was already hired by the employer, somebody who is on the job, then becomes a paid organizer for the union in addition, that that person at that point would lose employee status? I believe it would be a question of whether or not that person had agreed to subject themselves to the control of the union just like... Same thing, except it's someone who is already on the payroll. Yes, ma'am. In every other respect, it's the same. Yes, Your Honor. I I believe that it's very similar to the issue of a a worker who accepts the responsibilities of a foreman. The question then becomes, have they taken on a different status? And it depends upon whether the control, whether, whether the... Uh, this person who had been in, working as an employee agreed to change their job, to take as their primary Let's function. Let's not talk in the abstract. The worker is doing the job, becomes a convert to the union, takes money from the union to organize during lunch time and work breaks, and that's it, compensated for attempting to organize the shop. Is that person no longer an employee? I would submit that if that person had subjected themselves to the control of the union and had similar had obligations similar to those that were imposed by the salting resolution in this case, that would give the union primary control over what that person. Let's did. take the salting resolution out of it and just have the compensation for organizing. 
the shop using within the within the rules of the shop using free time and lunch breaks i think that that would be very much like the conflict of interest that uh, a lawyer would uh, have if they were trying to suspend their representation of one client to represent the opponent uh, for a meeting or for a hearing. I don't You're basically saying that even under those circumstances, uh, the person could no longer be an employee within the meaning of the Act. I mean, that's what it sounds like in your response. If they accepted the submitted well, the Well, uh, what about a striking worker who accepts union, follows the union order to strike, accepts benefits from the union, and so forth. Not an employee, under your theory. But I, I, I disagree, Your Honor. I believe that because that person was, uh, had withdrawn his services from the employer, that there is nothing, there, there is not a conflicting obligation on the employee. Well, how about the rank-and-file employee who is a union member and who has already agreed in advance by being a union member that if the union requires him to strike, he will? And furthermore, if the union provides benefits during the strike, he'll take them. I don't — I believe that that's an entirely different situation. I don't think that has anything to do with the type of situation that we have in here where you have someone who is to be working for the union while — working for the uh, — actually on the job for the employer. Well, in any case, I take it your answer or earlier answer that it's the uh, failure to limit his activities to off-duty time. I take it you withdraw that answer. That has anything I, to do with your position. Your Honor, I didn't because, mean — Well, if I understood I — th I thought you answered Justice Ginsburg by saying, what if the employee come, is, already, is already hired, the union says, uh, we'll pay you money to organize during the lunch breaks and the off time. Uh, I understood you to say that that, in fact, uh, would remove the person from employee status. That's correct. Okay. So uh, there's, there's nothing about off-time or on-time which is essential to your position. Your position is no matter when he exercises these responsibilities to the union, the fact that he has them precludes his employee status. And as long as that agency relationship and control exists, right. yes. So it's got nothing to do, then, with, with on-time or off-time. Correct. Why is that so? All those shop stewards uh, who have obligations to the union, do, do, do they, remain, do they remain, remain employees or not? If, if they are acting within the consensual relationship of the, uh, the, the collective bargaining relationship, that's... But they're doing work for the union, aren't they? That, that's true, but th that is normally covered by the collective bargaining uh, relationship. There, I believe there's a Sixth Circuit case in Bechtel that said that where, in fact, the uh, union control the steward, uh, that... It was a violation of 302 no, for the It seems to me that the theory of the Act is that there's no inherent incompatibility between uh, obligations to the, to the union and obligation to the employer. And I, I don't know how to make the Act work without, without adopting that. I, I think that the distinction is based on going back to the definition of employee. The, the statute starts, the foundation of it is the word employee. The circular definition incorporates the concept of the employment relationship, the agency relationship. And I believe that's the distinction that Congress is making, is where there is this agency relationship that's inconsistent. Why is it inconsistent? I mean, that's the problem. It's not inconsistent as to the work he's doing for the employer. It is. Because if the union is telling him to sabotage, uh, you know, the, 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 
the machinery he's working on, yes, that's inconsistent. But the union's not di- directing his work as to what he's doing for the employer. In, in the first instance, Your Honor, I believe that the, uh, the, the motivation of the um, uh, employee differs from the motivation of this, these union agents. Union agents have no uh, uh, concern whatsoever about whether or not the employer likes them or whether they're doing good work for that employer because they're not dependent on that employer's compensation. Well, so all employees of General Motors are really concerned whether the employer likes them or not? No, Your Honor. That's no. not an ordinarily a- ordinary attribute of industrial employment. Is it, is it a concern that the employer like you? No, I, uh, I don't mean to say that. What, what I was uh, meant to say was that the, empl- the employee is amenable to discipline because they want to keep their job, and they're concerned about getting a reference in the future. So they're concerned about what the employer thinks about them, and they are amenable to... But you could say that about anybody who has a second job, whether it's with a union or not. Indeed, you could say it about people who are independently wealthy and are working at GM just for the fun of it. That doesn't make them non-employees, does it? But I think that because you're having them focus on simultaneously doing and serving conflicting interests, I think that's that simultaneous conflict... But why is it and that's true even if they work full-time, perform all the duties the employer wants them to perform and earn their money. Yes, sir. Even if the employer never — if it's true if the employer doesn't know about it, too? Yes. If the guy never was an employee, yes. he worked there five years, he got paid every day, and, and built all the things he was supposed to build, he never was an employee because he had this secret loyalty to some other person. He never had the employee under the National Labor Relations Act because of that conflict, and that also points out the fact that he could very is well it, vote Is it essential to your position that the conflict be with union or, say, it was a competitor? It's the same, same conflict. What if, he had a, what if he promised his wife he'd quit as soon as she told him to? <laughs> dangerous, dangerous job. It could happen. He's a pilot. I don't have a good answer for that, John. Seems to me to be the same. He's not an employee. Wouldn't it be a rather bad organizer if the, the, the organizer came there and didn't do a good job? Isn't there matching your incentive, I don't care because I'm being paid by somebody else? In fact, isn't there a harmony of these interests? Because in order to organize, the union person has got to keep that job. And if he gives cause to be discharged, he's not going to be a very effective organizer. I, I would submit that, that frequently it is the purpose of the union to have the uh, organizer fired so that they can file unfair labor practices because if they can get the National Labor Relations Board to find that the employer is a violator and that there are substantial monetary damages, they can much more effectively and much more quickly get what their, their goal is, which is a labor agreement, than they can if they go through the democratic processes of the Act. They're not going to do that very effectively if he is plausibly fired for bad work. Well, while that may, true, may be true, that's what happened in this they case. They want him to do good work but be obnoxious, isn't it? <laughs> I, be- I mean, isn't that the way it works? I don't think so. No. I think that in this case there was substantial evidence that he did work poorly. The administrative law judge and that credited been, that. That would have been cause for discharge. Well, and that's a question of fact. 
And the, and the NLRB ruled against the employer, as they generally would in this sort of a case, where there's an overt organizer because they would say that the employer is discriminating on the basis of the known union activity. Well, Mr. Pease, presumably the employer could make a broad policy in hiring people that the employer won't hire anyone who has a second job. That's true, Your Honor, but it — This employer didn't have that rule. That's correct. That is, in this day of limited uh, uh, skilled and technical people, uh, that's a very difficult policy to maintain because there are many people who have no conflict of interest uh, who would work and be willing to work and would perform a valuable service to the employer. And the employer is uh, uh, unable to utilize them if they have this broad sweeping rule. There's also the problem of temporary uh, employment agencies that frequently provide uh, employees or, or people to work for the, supplement the crews. Uh, you'd, be, you'd be precluded from using them. I'd like to clear up just one small point. Um, did, did I understand you to say that there is no such thing as a shop steward unless there's a collective bargaining agreement? No, Your Honor, I didn't. Well, suppose you had somebody who was a zealous union person, didn't take a penny because is just so devoted to the union, doesn't want to take anything from the union treasury, doing the same thing that this person did, undertakes the job, said, union, I'm going to use all my free time to proselytize for, for you. Does that person lose employee status? No, Your Honor, I don't believe so. I think Congress made that distinction by incorporating the law of agency into the definition of employee. That zealot, as I understand your fact situation, would not be acting as an agent of another party and therefore uh, would not be outside the definition of employee. Why can't you be an unpaid agent? You could be. Well, then the answer to Justice Ginsburg's question would be different, wouldn't it? But I think there has to be the agency. I mean, this, this is a zealot. If, if, the, if the unpaid zealot doesn't hey, fall under it. has to be a zealot with a contract, right? It has to be a contract. Even if the uh, contract is, is a peppercorn or nothing at all. A zealot with a contract. I believe that. Then you change your answer. Yes. Okay. Are you going to stand on that? Yes. Okay. <laughs> you better be careful. <laughs> uh, I believe that, that the, uh, under the Darden case, that this Court has held that uh, when Congress uses circular definition of employee, they tend to intend to incorporate the law of agency into that definition. And I think that's what they did in this case. What do you find in the law of agency that, that contradicts, I mean, what, the, the, the restatement? I have the restatement here somewhere. I don't, I don't find it inconsistent. It says, a person may be the servant of two masters, not joint employers at one time as to one act, if the service to one does not involve abandonment of the service to the other. And That's you right. say that here it, the, the one does involve. But you, you, you leave out the fact that it says as to one act. You can, you can easily be the servant of two masters as to different acts. I believe that the, that the concept there, though, is that if that is 
a pervasive, if it is a general control that is being exercised by the union. So long as it's not a control over the act that he's doing from the employer, for the employer. What, what control does the union exercise over the act that he is doing for the employer? Okay. There are several areas of control. First of all, and these, I think, illustrate the conflict. One is, already been mentioned, leaving. Uh, it's a critical time. The, the salt must leave. The, the zealous union organizer at least may be amenable to a plea by the employer to stay, at least during the critical time, so they don't get a bad reputation. And have he has no obligation to the employer to stay. I mean, if it were a term contract, yes, then he'd have a duty to the employer. But all, by definition, the person who's an, in an at-will contract has no duty to the employer to stay. That's correct, but they're exercising their free will in making the change. Here, it's an order from the union. I think that's the basic distinction that Congress is making by their use of the circular definition. So long as it's not an order from the union that causes him to violate a duty to the employer, I don't see how that changes his employee status. I don't. I believe that it is con it's because it's contrary to the interests of the employer. It's to the interest of the employer to have that employee continue to work during the concrete pour or some other critical stage of the, of the work. If this is just a voluntary uh, union organizer, that person may be amenable to persuasion from the employer about how critical that work is. If it's, a, if it's a, an agent of the union, they have no choice. They have to leave immediately. And I believe that's, I think that's the distinction. Uh, the board argues that the uh, statute uh, includes the entire uh, class of workers. I don't believe that that's the case. I think that, that the board routinely makes distinctions between employees and non-employees in enforcing or interpreting this court's decision in Lechmere. Um, and, I, and I think the, the Hearst case referred to by the board holds that Congress didn't intend to have a sweeping inclusion of, of a class of employees. And, and I think that the Sunland uh, exceptions that was discussed earlier uh, is really insupportable. I don't think that there's a valid distinction between what uh, the union agent can do in a non-strike setting as compared to what they would do in a strike setting. I think that the analysis is the same, and I think that that illustrates that the invalidity of uh, the board's position in this case, and indeed... Would you tell me about the Sunland case? Did the Sunland case hold that the uh, people involved were not employees or that it was not an unfair labor practice to uh, discriminate against? It was that the employer had no duty. They did not specifically say that they were not employees. But I believe that the analysis is the same analysis that I'm urging. It's essentially an agency relationship. Let me also clarify one thing in my own mind. In this case, there was one person who actually went to work for the employer, and there were seven or eight who never got hired, as I remember. You don't draw a distinction between those two. You don't challenge the Phelps-Dodge case, in other words. No, I, the Phelps-Dodge case, I think that if they would have been a bona fide employee as when if they, were, if they were employed, hired. they would be bona fide applicants. If they're not, they wouldn't be, then they wouldn't be bona fide. So it's the same rule as to both groups. Yes, yeah. yes Your Honor. But, but it is the government's position that you, that you have not only, uh, well, you cannot refuse to hire these salts. Isn't that the government's position? Yes, Your Honor. That going in, you shouldn't, you can't turn down the other seven just because you know that they're union salts. That is my understanding of their position. What is your position on whether any deference is owed to the NLRB in defining a term 
used in the NLRA. In this case, the term is employee. I believe that, that the Board is due deference when their interpretation is reasonable and consistent with the policies of the Act. I do not believe that it's reasonable for the Board to exclude the definition from the definition of employee the law of agency. I believe if you read the definition of the law of agency, the, 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 the Congress intended to retain the core of the employment relationship as the basis for protection under the Act. Uh, and I think that the, the analysis that they have used, uh, in effect, would even exclude the, the managerial employee, and I don't see that as being uh, But you, you said that employee is not self-defining, or have you said that? The word employee. The, I, the, I believe that by including a, a circular definition, they did intend to include the law of agency into the definition of employee. And is I, there room for any room for interpretation, or does the word employee have a plain meaning? Well, I, I do believe there is room for interpretation, and I believe that, that Congress uh, did intend to uh, expand on the law or on the on the law of agency by adding the language that it's not limited to an employee of any particular employer, because I think they wanted to include employees in several. Uh, Different with several different employers in an industry. So your but position I, is there's room for interpretation, but this particular interpretation is unreasonable. That's correct. And I believe one of the reasons that I think it is is that when Congress went on to explain in the definition of employee, they said that it included uh, individuals who were out of work or whose work ceased because of a current labor dispute or an unfair labor practice and who had not uh, obtained uh, regular and substantially equivalent employment, which implies that there are other situations which would not be included. And it seems to me that it, what it does is it shows that they were trying to take, uh, uh, retain the core. Plus, I believe that I think that the, that the uh, board's decision in this case is inconsistent with the policies of the Act. I believe that that the Act says that. The purpose, its purpose is to protect the right to organize. And the board at page 8 of its brief says that they interpret it as that it's the, uh, to, to promote organization. And I would submit that what the board is doing in that situation is it is, be, it is, it is saying that there is a preferred choice uh, and that they are going to go out and support that and to give the status of employee to a person who's contractually prohibited from exercising the rights of an employee under Section 7 of the Act. Uh, and I think that that's inconsistent with the 1947 amendments to the Act that said that, that uh, employees had the right to refrain from any of those activities. I think that that set up two equally acceptable choices, and the Board was supposed to be an impartial referee. And I believe in this case they have uh, — moved from that position, and, I, and for that reason, I don't think that they're due deference. How, again, do you think it, the, the board is partial here, as, it, as opposed to being neutral, being organizing and non-organizing? Well, I think, I think that what they're doing uh, is they're giving their stamp of, the pr of approval and requiring the employer to put the union on the employer's crew. This person is an agent of the union, and they're requiring to put him on the crew, which could mean that if he's not detected, he could pack the unit, or uh, they could, the union, in effect, is buying votes, or 
the, the employees are deceived into believing that this is someone who is sincerely expressing their own personal uh, convictions, and in fact they're doing it for pay, or this person may even engage in. Well, well, what, if, what if some person who uh, seeks employment who wants to try to decertify the union? He's not a member of the union. He's just trying to decertify it. If the board applied the same standard to them as they do to the to the assaulted organizer, they would they would be impartial, would they not? Granted, there may not be too many of the former species. Well, it. I think the, the issue would only come up if this person was acting on behalf of some third party uh, and there was an, an agency relationship. A rival union, perhaps. I'm sorry? A, a rival union, perhaps. That, that's true. Very, very possible. And that is a point I would like to make. This is something that doesn't just uh, apply, or the, the holding in this case will not just apply in the construction industry, if I'm understanding the Board's position. This could apply in all industries, and it could apply in a situation where the fact the, the uh, employer was already unionized by one union, and it could be another union that's coming in to try to take it away. I think that the uh, a point that has been made it's, — it's made in Wilmar, and it's a point that I would like to address. I've touched on it earlier. Uh, I believe that the, the Board is assuming that the uh, union agents are entitled to the protection of the Act, and that their analysis begins with the premise that these people are employees and entitled to the protection of the Act, and then the, the, the question becomes, have they done something to lose that protection? I would submit to you that it is inappropriate to assume that they are employees and to make this status determination, as we make it in other instances, supervisors, independent contractors, make that independent uh, of the presumptions or of, of uh, protected activity, independent of the motive of the employer for engaging uh, in activity that raises the question, it's a status question, and therefore, uh, we would submit that uh, it's inappropriate. Oh, just one more comment. I think that the, that the uh, control that the union exercised over the union agent in this case is illustrated by the su supernatural persistence he displayed in soliciting uh, town and country employees in the face of repeated rejection. Uh, these employees were so upset by the pressure that the union agent was putting on them that they were uh, on the verge of quitting. And this is another way that the union can be effective uh, without uh, going the high road because they can focus on those employees who are opposed to unionization and, uh, in effect, force them off the workforce, which means either that they will be replaced by someone who might be more favorable or that they may uh, uh, make it 
impossible for the employer to perform, then that non-union employer is off the job. That requires a thoroughly obnoxious organizer, I guess, <laughs> who, who is apt not to have much success, I would think, in, in organizing for the union. The, the, but the, but the, the problem is, Your Honor, the problem is, Your Honor, that frequently the objective is not to organize in the classical sense. I think that is another fallacy. It is not appropriate to assume that the objective may be to organize. The objective may be, as suggested by Joel Harmatz in the Sunland case, to inflict economic pain so that they can get uh, leverage on the employer to force them to sign a contract or keep, keep them out of the area. Uh, and that, unfortunately, is what uh, we find frequently happens throughout the case. Uh, I, I, I do want to emphasize that I believe that the Sunland case uh, the, the board's analysis in that case is insupportable, and I believe that using a similar analysis, uh, an analysis that we espouse, that the law of agency should be used to interpret uh, uh, the status of people and determine whether they're entitled to the protection of the employees, and that the board should uh, abandon this position and should return to a, a position of impartiality that was intended by Congress. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Pease. Uh, Mr. Wallace, you have four minutes remaining. Thank Mr. Wallace, I, before you even start, I, I have — the one thing that, that sticks in my craw a little bit about this case is, is not the necessity of treating this person as an employee. That's fine. But the inability not only not to fire the person knowing that he's on the union payroll, but even the inability to refuse to hire the person knowing that he's on the union payroll. Why must they be the same question? Is, is there any way that I can agree with you on, on the employee question, but, but not necessarily uh, believe that the, that the salt has to be hired if the employer knows going in that this person who wants to be his employee is on the union payroll? Well, what would make it unlawful to refuse to hire him, or to fire him, for that matter? 8A1 and 8A3 protect against uh, uh, coercion or uh, intimidation in the exercise of uh, uh, rights rights to abolish. The rights guaranteed in Section 157. Does that include the right to be employed by a labor union? Well, it includes the right to participate in the union and to uh, um, uh, comply with its voluntary rules he so has no long problem as with the that. member wants to do that. He has no problem and with all that. The employer says, I don't, you know, I have no problem with all that. I just don't want you to be on the union payroll. Uh, organizational activity is an important part of a union's functions. I have no problem with that. I just don't want you to be on the union payroll. Well, you want that, that is, organizational that is, activity? You know, God bless you, but I do not want a worker who's on the union payroll. That, Seems to me a perfectly reasonable position for an employer to take. It, 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 it may be a reasonable position, but it is a position that interferes with the union's ability to conduct its protected activities. In, in any event, that, that question wasn't even put to the board by the, uh, the response to this It's a separate question, case. though, from whether he's an employee That's once correct. he's hired. It is a separate question, as the Sunland decision illustrates. Um, uh, but the board made its views uh, on that question quite clear in this case. 
I, I do want to mention that there is one paragraph in the Board's opinion, and this is not the ALJ's opinion, it's the Board's own opinion, on page 37A of the appendix to our petition that responds very succinctly to the contentions uh, <coughs> made by the respondent and its amici which were made before the board that uh, paid union organizers will engage in activities to the detriment of work assigned by the employer or will embark on acts inimical, inimical to the employer's legitimate interests, and the board said, we do not agree. And then there are several more sentences that uh, specifically reflect the judgment of the board in response to this and the complete lack of evidentiary support for these speculations in this case. And uh, one is left with the question in this case that first occurred to me when the case came to our office. If a journeyman electrician working under the direction and control and according to the work rules and on the payroll of an employer covered by the Act is not an employee, what in the world is he? He's not a, in domestic service or an independent contractor. Thank you, Mr. Wallace. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.